$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part two of the murder of Belinda Temple. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Last week, we talked about the lives of Belinda and David Temple before they met, their big proposal, their wedding of a lifetime, and how their once fairy tale relationship seemed to take a turn in 1998. By the end of last week's episode, you learned that on January 11, 1999, two calls to 911 were made. One call from the neighbor across the street who thought the temple's house had simply been broken into, and one call from David, who told the operator that he'd found his wife just weeks away from her due date, shot to death in their master bedroom closet. The police responded immediately, but had a hard time getting into the house because the temple's dog was as loyal as they come. Their dog's attitude was essentially, if you don't live here, you don't come here. The police were faced with the fact that they might have to shoot the temple's dog in order to get inside their home, but before they had to make that call, David came outside. According to a court document on fine law, which is going to be heavily sourced in this episode, officers reported that David calmly walked outside and told officers that his wife had been shot and that she was dead. David then took their dog and put him inside of their detached garage, where the document says the dog continued to bark. Again, this dog knew that people other than the temples were at their house and was not happy about it. David was taken outside and placed in a patrol car while officers cleared the house and began their investigation. They had to figure out what happened between 4 p.m. when he says he left and 5.30 p.m. when he says he got back. While in the patrol car, the document states that David asked to speak with one of the officers on scene. A detective came to the car and of all the questions David could have asked, he asked the detective how much longer he was going to have to sit in there. The detective let David know that it was more than likely that someone was going to have to speak with him and take a statement. Seems like a pretty obvious thing, right? I mean, his pregnant wife had been found shot in their bedroom closet. You can assume someone's going to ask for a statement. A formal statement at that, considering he was the last known person to see her alive, and he was the person who found her. But David didn't seem happy about that answer. According to the document, David got agitated and asked why he would have to give a statement. 
I can think of like 117 reasons why, but what the fuck do I know? While David was waiting to give a statement, law enforcement was processing the temple home and not everything they saw made sense. So let's start with the garage. Parked inside the garage was Belinda's red Isuzu and David's blue Chevy pickup, the Chevy pickup that he and Evan were in when David says they left Belinda to rest while they went to the park and ran some errands. Inside David's truck, there was a bag of cat food in the passenger seat, a jacket in the floorboard, and David's wallet was in the driver's side door. This means he did not take his wallet inside with him when he said he unbuckled Evan and left him in the garage to let Belinda know they were home. In going through photos taken from the scene sometime after police got there, detectives noticed that there wasn't a car seat in David's pickup. The document doesn't specify how long after they got to the scene that these photos were taken. However, they do note that a specific officer was placed at the front door of the temple home to make sure that no one came in or out of the house or the garage. And according to him, he didn't see anyone do that. We should consider the fact that David did take their barking dog into the garage to let police into the backyard. Is it possible he also removed David's car seat from his truck while he was in there? Sure. Couldn't tell you why anyone would do that, but sure, it's possible. In Belinda's car, they found a Home Depot bag with two wooden shelf brackets inside. According to the receipt, they had been purchased two days before she was killed on January 9th at 5.32 p.m. She had bought them for the baby's room, but they were the wrong size, so she needed to return them. We know that David said he went to Home Depot with Evan while he was letting Belinda rest, but he didn't take those brackets with him to return. But hey, maybe it was an impromptu trip, but we'll get to that later. Also in Belinda's car, in the center console, was a cell phone. The document doesn't explicitly say who the cell phone belonged to, but it was in Belinda's car. And it seems odd that either of them would have been without their cell phone, considering Belinda was weeks away from her due date and David was out with their three-year-old who had come home sick from preschool that day. The rest of the garage seemed pretty unremarkable. There was what the document describes as fresh dog food, a bowl of water, and a sleeping pallet for a dog. Moving inside the house, police took note of that one broken pane of glass on the back door. It was just that one pane, and it was the one closest to the doorknob. The key to the back door was actually still in the doorknob on the inside of the door, so breaking a hole in the glass would certainly have allowed someone to reach in and unlock the door so they could get in. It doesn't look like anyone tried using any other kind of burglar-type means to get inside the house because there were no pry marks on the door. There was also no damage on the inside of the door, which is interesting because there was a wooden hutch right inside the door to the left. It kept the door from opening that full 180 degrees. It could only really open about 90 degrees or so. Had a burglar broken into the house and tried to open the door any further than 90 degrees, it should have hit that hutch. But hey, maybe they just quietly crept in the door after making a bunch of noise breaking the glass. We've touched on where the hutch is in relation to the door, but let's go a little further into the layout we're going to be working with here. I know this isn't HGTV, but I promise this is going somewhere. 
The back door opened into what's described as a foyer that leads into the living room. In photos obtained by CBS News, it looks like the foyer is essentially just a small area of laminate flooring where you can put a rug and wipe your feet. And directly in front of that door when you walk in is the armrest of a couch that sits in said living room. My eyes are clearly not rulers, but if I had to guess, when the door is open that full 90 degrees, I'd say the armrest of that couch is maybe four to six inches from the door, so not far at all. We already went over the wooden hutch that sits on the other side of that back door, which kept it from opening all the way, but let's go over that whole back wall. Beside the hutch is this big-ass brick fireplace that comes out of the wall. It's not like one of those new fireplaces that sits pretty flush. It's got that little seating area in front that comes out a couple feet. In the photos from CBS News, there's a basket sitting on the bench of the fireplace and a small rug sitting on top of the carpet in front of it. Past the fireplace, there was a lamp, a window, and then the corner of the room. In the corner, there was a small little wooden TV stand where one of those 1990s fat-backed heavier-than-lead TVs sat on. Now that you've got a mental picture of the room, let's talk about what law enforcement saw when they walked in and what was wrong with it. Obviously, there was glass on the floor in the living room because that pane in the back door had been broken. However, it wasn't where you'd expect it to be. You'd assume that most of the glass on the floor would be in that itty-bitty foyer, that small piece of laminate flooring and rug, because gravity. Or maybe on that couch because velocity. But very little glass was found in front of the door, and according to that document on fine law, no glass was found on the couch. The majority of the glass was found in front of the fireplace, past the hutch, to the left of the door. The furthest piece of glass from the door was 13 feet away, and it wasn't anywhere in front of the door. No, it was 13 feet away to the left of the door towards the TV stand in the corner. How in Newton's law is that even possible if the door was locked and closed when the glass was broken? Unless the glass was broken when the door was open and, you know, stopped at a 90 degree angle or so because it was being stopped by that hutch. But what kind of burglar would break a single glass pane on a door, the pane closest to the doorknob, if the door was already open? Just to be fair, we should probably at least consider that maybe some of the glass broke and went to the left when David rushed in to find Belinda. But remember, there was no damage to the inside of the back door, which you'd assume to find if he slammed it into the hutch, causing glass to fly into the left side of the living room. However, we know there was none, and there was no damage to the hutch either, and none of that explains why very little glass was found in front of the door and the lack of glass on the couch. Could he have shuffled the glass to the left of the room? I mean, anything's possible, but some things are less possible than others, especially considering the fact that this was broken glass on a carpet. It wasn't like it would have been sliding across a hardwood floor. We've spent a lot of time on the glass, so let's move on to the TV. Remember, this was before the wonderful world of flat screen TVs, and this was a fat back TV. I literally don't know how else to describe it. It kind of goes back into a big triangle, and anyone born after the 2000s might consider this an antique, but they were heavy as a bitch and would get super hot the same way computers do when they're running too hard. These TVs are not easy to move, but the Temple's TV was off of that little wooden stand lying on its side on the carpet. In the photos from CBS News, that little wooden stand honestly looks about the same size as the TV, if not a little bit smaller. 
But the stand wasn't knocked over, just that TV. And this isn't the kind of TV that's easy to knock over. Like we said before, it's heavy and it goes back into a triangle base. The TV was on the floor, but it wasn't face down on the floor. It was laying on its side with the base of the TV facing the TV stand, almost like it had been just dragged off the stand and placed on the floor, careful not to break the screen. And wouldn't you know, the court document reports that there was indeed a fresh scratch on the front edge of the TV stand. The TV wasn't even unplugged, not from the wall and not even from the cable. The document even notes that when officers turned it on, it still worked. Why would a burglar slide a TV off of its stand and be nice enough to not break it when they likely could have just tipped the TV and the TV stand over at the same time? Is it possible a burglar was just trying to steal the TV and realized it was too heavy and nicely laid it back down? Sure, but they wouldn't have gotten very far in the lifting process since it was still plugged in. And what would have been their plan? Come out of a nice house that sits on the corner for everyone to see in a nice neighborhood in broad daylight with kids getting off the bus, lugging a TV out of the backyard and dodging a really upset dog? But hey, that coupled with the glass in front of the fireplace, maybe they're just the dumbest burglar in the world. Moving on from the TV, there was a buffet in the living room, not like an all-you-can-eat kind of buffet, a furniture buffet. It's kind of like a long dresser for a living room. Some have drawers, some have cabinets, and some hold wine. A lot of people put live, laugh, love signs on them and decorate them with farmhouse decor. You get the point. According to the court document, three drawers in the temple's buffet were open, the two top drawers and one of the bottom drawers. I suppose the drawers in between were of no interest to this supposed burglar. Actually, I suppose none of them were since none of the drawers had been disturbed. Sure, they were open, but it didn't appear that any of the contents had been touched at all, let alone had anything actually been taken from them. Generally, when you see drawers open during a burglary, you see the contents rifled through or even thrown out. Kind of like we saw in the Lisa Straub Johnny Clark case. There were papers and all sorts of things thrown all over the floor. Burglars are generally looking for something worth anything that they can take from the house. And knowing that sometimes people hide expensive or important things in drawers, they go through them. Rarely do you see a burglar just open a drawer and move on. Does it happen? Sure. But as far as the first floor of the temple's house goes, the glass, the TV, the drawers, all of it seems to have been for literally nothing. As law enforcement continued to comb through the downstairs, they opened a closet and found Belinda's purse neatly hanging. If you own a purse and you're thinking who in the fuck hangs their purse in a closet, you're not alone. Court documents report that absolutely nothing was taken from Belinda's purse. Is it possible the supposed burglar didn't see the purse because it was in the closet? Sure, but according to Belinda's family, Belinda probably wouldn't have found it either. According to them, she always left her purse in the kitchen on their breakfast bar. I had to Google what a breakfast bar was, and it looks like it's an attached island to the kitchen counters where you can put chairs on one side. Everyone who already knew that, forgive my initial lack of kitchen knowledge. Belinda apparently had a whole setup on the breakfast bar right by the kitchen phone where she would keep her stuff. 
Right beside where she would lay her purse was a little tray that she would keep her keys in. But that's not where they found her purse, nor is it where they found her keys. Belinda's keys were found on the stairs. I can do my best to explain away someone putting a purse in a closet, but the keys on the stairs, I have nothing. However, David had an explanation. According to court documents, David disputed what Belinda's family said about where she kept her purse. He said that she would put her purse in the closet under the stairs and then drop her keys about two-thirds of the way up the stairs. What, though? Why would there be a tray for keys on the breakfast bar right beside where her family says that she put her keys and her purse when David is saying that she put her purse in the closet and would drop her keys very specifically about two-thirds of the way up the steps? They had a three-year-old who was likely learning to navigate the steps himself. I'm no expert, but I find it hard to believe that Belinda was throwing out obstacles that he had to maneuver around. And three-year-old aside, Belinda and David both had two feet each. And if you think stepping on a Lego is a bitch, imagine stepping on a set of keys on the damn stairs. Now imagine stepping on the keys going down the stairs eight months pregnant. To sum this up, we have the cell phone in Belinda's center console, her purse in the closet, and her keys on the stairs. Her family says it's strange. David says it's normal. Moving up the stairs and past Belinda's keys, law enforcement made their way into the temple's master bedroom. In the master bedroom, there was a jewelry box lying on the dresser. You can see it in the episode of 2020, and it didn't even look like it had been touched. There was also a tray in the master bedroom that had jewelry just sitting on it. In the photos from CBS News, you can see that there were two gold chains, a gold pendant for a necklace, a gold watch, David's gold wedding band, and David's championship ring, and none of it had been stolen, much like nothing from the buffet dressers in Belinda's purse had been stolen. I will say, though, that 2020 made a solid point. In their episode, they showed a layout of the temple's bedroom, and the TV in their master bedroom likely would have blocked the view of the jewelry tray from the door. That's if this supposed burglar didn't go much further into the room than the doorway. That being said, Belinda was wearing jewelry when she was killed, a necklace, a bracelet, a watch, and rings on both of her hands, and none of that was taken either. Now that we've gone through the house, it's time to cover the really tough part of this case, which is what law enforcement found in the closet. In reading the court document, it looks like this walk-in closet was in the bathroom, which was inside of the master bedroom. So it was a room within a room within a room. Inside the closet, they found Belinda lying face down on the floor. It doesn't sound like that's the way David found her, though. According to that document, when David found Belinda, she was balled up in the corner of the closet and he had pulled her feet to lay her flat. No explanation is given as to why, but if I had to rationalize it myself with the burglar theory, maybe he pulled her trying to figure out what was wrong and when he did, saw that she'd been shot in the head and called 911. Nonetheless, when law enforcement found Belinda, she was fully clothed including her shoes. And honestly, that's the first thing that ever jumped out at me with this case. Literally the number one thing. I watched the 2020 episode, saw that she had her shoes on when she was found, and that David had said she'd gone upstairs to get some rest and was like, nah, pregnant women don't get rest with their shoes on, especially shoes that have a little bit of a heel on them. 
Knowing that her co-workers specifically commented on how Belinda's feet had been swelling, it seemed even more suspicious. Even if you're exhausted and don't have it in you to change your clothes, you're more than likely still going to take your shoes off. If not because you're eight months pregnant and your feet are swollen, at the very least because you don't want your shoes on your bed. But in the name of being fair, is it possible she went upstairs and just collapsed into the comfort of her bed without even bothering to take off her shoes? Yes, it is. Beside Belinda's body or in her hand, the court document says that it was either, was a portable home phone. Anyone born in the 90s probably remembers these as a step up from the cord phones attached to the wall. The base for a portable phone in their bedroom was missing a portable phone. It's not explicitly stated that the phone with Belinda's body was the portable phone missing from the bedroom base, but the likelihood here seems strong. According to the document, though, there were two phones in the temple's master bedroom, the step-up portable phone and the old-school corded no-privacy-allowed phone. Law enforcement hit redial on the portable phone to see who the phone had dialed last, and according to the document, the last call was to a guy named Michael. Michael and his wife Peggy are the people who lived across the street from the temples. Michael was the one who ran across the street with David, he's the one who got stuck at the fence with the barking dog, and Peggy's the one who took Evan and made the first 911 call at David's request. According to court documents, the portable phone was not the phone that David used to call 911. The phone used to call 911 was the corded phone. The walk-in closet was set up to where there were two levels where you could hang clothes. In photos from CBS News, you can see that Belinda's head was directly underneath some pants that were hanging. There was a gap between those pants and some other pants, and then a skinny stacking shelf full of shoes near her waist and hips, and then further towards her legs and feet was a row of shirts. According to court documents, most of Belinda's blood and brain matter was on the bottom row of clothes, which led law enforcement to believe that she had been kneeling when she was shot. The document actually noted that it looked like there was a row of clothes that had been moved after Belinda was shot because they had a lot of blood and brain matter on them and those clothes had shielded the back wall from any of it. There isn't a ton of detail given about which clothes were moved, but regardless of which, it begs the question, why? Why would an intruder or random killer take the time to move clothes around in the closet after killing someone? After shooting a gun inside of a house surrounded by other houses in broad daylight, they didn't take any jewelry off of her body, but they did shift some clothes. In the corner of the closet, police found two rifles, but neither were the gun used to kill Belinda. According to the court document, the gun used to kill Belinda was a 12-gauge shotgun. The ammunition used to kill her was double-aught-sized buckshot. I want to go into exactly what double-aught-sized buckshot is to give everyone a better idea of just how heinous Belinda's murder was. In a normal gun, it shoots out one bullet, but shotguns are made to shoot multiple pellets, essentially circular bullets, at one time. They're generally used for hunting, but have taken up some popularity with home protection. When it comes to shotgun ammunition, you have birdshot and buckshot. Birdshot has a wider spread of pellets when shot because you're shooting at birds, and buckshot has a more condensed spread because you're shooting at one single animal. I reached out to a hunting expert who said that when you're talking about ammunition size for a 12-gauge shotgun, it starts at four being the smallest, then three, then two, then one, and then there's zero, double zero, and then triple zero, which is the biggest. 
Belinda was killed with double aught size buckshot, meaning it would have been the second largest. The hunting expert said that a single shotgun shell of double aught size buckshot would hold nine eight millimeter pellets. They would all shoot out at once, spreading out once it's shot. Essentially, it's like being shot with nine eight millimeter bullets at the same time. The only difference being that a regular bullet is long with a pointed tip and shotgun pellets are circular. The single shotgun blast to the back of Linda's head left a five inch hole. And I'm going to directly quote the document here because it hurts my soul to even try and find a way to reword this. But according to the document, the front of her face and brain were blown away. Looking at the entrance wound on the back of Belinda's head, there was no stippling. According to a report by Dr. Lorenzo Guito and Dr. Robert Stoppaker on pathology outlines, stippling happens during near contact wounds, which according to their report means that the firearm is not in contact with the target, but is held a very short distance from it. While there wasn't any stippling on the outside of Belinda's entrance wound, there was gunshot residue and soot within the gunshot wound itself. The reports from Dr. Guito and Dr. Stoppaker said that soot comes from carbon produced by the combustion of gunpowder when it leaves the barrel of the gun. Basically, when a gun goes off, powder shoots out of the barrel. If the powder is on the outside of the wound, that means there was likely some space between the gun and the entrance wound. If the powder is not found on the outside of the wound, it suggests that there was no space between the gun and where the entrance wound was made. Knowing all of that, the court document said that it was the medical examiner's opinion that Belinda was shot when the gun was either touching her head or in contact with it. Belinda, eight months pregnant, had been shot at point-blank range. The processing of the Temple home left police with more questions than answers, and the first person on their list of people to talk to was David. He was going to need to verify his alibi when he left the house, which park he went to, which grocery store he went to, which Home Depot he went to, when he got there and when he left. And he was going to have to try and explain all of those other things that just didn't add up. To say the police had several questions would be an understatement, but David's answers and everything that followed will have to wait for next week. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Belinda's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you part three of the murder of Belinda Temple a week from today. And I cannot wait. But until then, we out.